his disciples. There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master's taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. There you go. Cue one eyebrow raise. <laughs> what did Jesus just tell us to do there? Like, what kind of a story is that one? Over Christian history, there's at least 10 different interpretations of what did Jesus just mean with his parable? And that's 10 main interpretations. There's variations on those to try and figure out what exactly is Jesus telling us to do with this one? It is very confusing. It's caused a lot of confusion. Uh, in fact, uh, so here's, here's a painting of the parable. And um, uh, it's, uh, uh, is it your style? I don't know. It's not really my style. I didn't have a lot of choice with this one. Most of the parables have lots of different paintings by lots of different artists for them, and it's easy to go and find, you know, I like that painting over this one. This parable doesn't have many paintings of it uh, in comparison. I think part of that is probably because of the confusion. It's not really people's favorite parable to go to, uh, but here is one of them. On the right there, you can see the owner. So he's the, the quite upset, angry owner. He's saying, you're fired. Uh, to the manager who is there on the left. I'm not sure that would be my facial expression if I was told I was fired. He's kind of looking a little bit, oh dear. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, a little bit whimsical or something. Um, but what you can see uh, top left there is the manager again. So another, another picture of the manager going and talking to the debtors and cancelling down their debts, writing down their debts. So it's a little bit of like 
in that top left corner, it's a little bit of a thought bubble, maybe, of his plans and preparations. Uh, if this was a cartoon, like a medieval cartoon, it's kind of put the bubble around it, that's, his, that's what's going on his, in his mind, maybe. Uh, but that's, that's what we've got. Yeah, what do, we, what, do we make of, what do we make of this parable? Uh, well, a, a, few things that might, a few things that might help. Firstly, all of these characters, so each of those characters pictured there, uh, including the debtors, are all hated figures. So when Jesus told this story and his primary audience, the people who were listening to them, each of those figures, the owner, the servant, and the, the manager and the debtors themselves, the other people, all of those were not the good guys. They were seen as the nasty bad guys because they were all incredibly wealthy, like ridiculously wealthy. Um, I don't really understand what bushels of wheat are worth and you know gallons of oil. It's, it's hard to kind of read that and go, Oh, okay, that, that's what that means. Uh, if, you, if you kind of try and put it into today's standards, like even that is tricky to do. But basically, we're talking about multi-million dollar transactions in some rough equivalent. And probably even then with the way that the society was structured. So there's a, there's a pyramid of the society that Jesus was living in. And a huge group of people who were peasants, maybe we'd say peasants, and uh, merchants as well. A huge group of people were, were in that uh, category. And then the pyramid goes up very rapidly to a smaller group of people. Right at the top of that wedge of that pyramid, in that wedge is the manager. Uh, no, 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 in that wedge is probably the, the manager and the debtors. So they have very large business transactions going on. They're in that wedge. The owner himself is kind of beyond the wedge. There's like a little thin line of power and privilege that goes up from there. He's probably in that little line. Incredibly wealthy in his context of society. So when, when Jesus' audience is hearing those sums of, of oil and wheat, that's what they're thinking about these people. They are not uh, favorite characters for anyone uh, listening to this story. So what happens? Well, something that is missed uh, a lot in reading through this story is the, the urgency. So the, the owner says, you're fired, and immediately the manager has this great sense of desperation and urgency. He sees that the clock is ticking. It's a very short period of time to do something about his, his circumstances. So he's not in a position to change jobs easily. Uh, his, his vocation, uh, the way he makes money, 
uh, is very swiftly about to evaporate. And this is a little bit more than, you know, he's a white collar worker and not wanting to do blue collar work. You know, it's a little bit beneath me. Uh, it's, it's probably, he is genuinely probably incapable of doing this work. There has been some archaeologists who, who look at um, remains and try and figure out certain, certain things about uh, your life expectancy if you were to become a day labourer. So for this guy, he's changing circumstances. They can figure out roughly what his life expectancy was going to be if he had to become a day laborer and then potentially become a beggar. He's looking at about 18 months of life expectancy. It was that hard to be a day laborer. Um, and then the, the slide into becoming a beggar is very swift and very rapid. When you become a beggar, very swiftly, your life, uh, your health and your life uh, is not very good. So he hears your fired and he knows the urgency. The equivalent for us, so in this metaphor, in this parable, what we are meant to think and hear about is our death. That's the equivalent for us. So the urgency on our life, we're meant to think about the urgency we have each and every day. We don't know how many days we have left on this earth, but it is all coming for us. We have limited time, limited opportunities. Uh, there is a window that is pressing in on us and that is our death. And what we're meant to hear is that that clock is ticking. But how easy is it to, to kind of, you know, the, the years to disappear and to get quite comfortable uh, in this life and to, to just set up and uh, expect that, that the years will just continue on as they have been. Maybe there's a bit of a slow decline as we go along. But we're meant to hear an urgency. So, that's the first thing to think about is a bit of a wake-up call about the time that we have left and to tune, attune our attention to eternity. Uh, and then we come to the shrewd manager's unemployment plans and what he goes and does. So he has this great urgency and he comes up with a shrewd plan and we look at the plan and go, oh, that's a little bit dodgy, quite dishonest, that's not quite moral to be going and doing that. Is, does he have authority to do that? Is he breaking his relationship with the, with the owner even more? Is he kind of just, oh, I'll burn my bridges, I'm gone, I may as well make the best of this. Should we then go and do those kinds of things? Is that the application going on? One of the biggest things to think about here uh, and particularly for many of us who are Westerners and Western thinking, what we often don't think about is an honour-shame culture. We think about individualistic um, employment and legal contracts that protect the individual. We don't often think about shame and honour dynamics, even though they happen, uh, there are big things going on here within shame and honour. There are cultures today that are much more aware and articulate about shame and honour, 
but it was certainly a huge thing in first century Palestine when Jesus was telling this story. So what are the shame and honor dynamics if you just think about how someone might feel shamed and feel honored in this parable and in this story? And what we often miss is how the owner himself might be suffering from some great shame. So he's in the upper echelons of society, but his manager is actually his public face. He is the embodiment of this owner to society. And so when he has a manager, when he has his, I guess, his, his PR department, his public face, his, his ambassador to the world, when he has a failing ambassador, when he is not, uh, when, it, when that ambassador is wasting money and not uh, making money for him as the owner, he has a shame problem already. So when he comes and fires his, his manager, he's already dealing with a massive shame problem himself. What is the public opinion going to be of this, uh, of not just the manager, but himself, and how he will be viewed by his peers? And then, of course, the manager is going to be dealing with a huge amount of shame too. His public perception in society as a terrible manager who can't uh, save money, who can't earn money, he's wasting his owner's money. He has a shame problem himself. And so he comes up with an honor solution to the shame problem. It costs money but it's an honor solution. Can you see that? He goes out and writes down the debts, so there's a cost to the owner. He's gonna lose money, significant sums of money in these writing down of the debts, the canceling of some of these debts. But they both earn some honor here. So the manager makes friends with these debtors. So when he is fired, he's got some houses to go to, some people who might take him in because he's earned them some more money. He's earned himself a place in society with them. But he's also earned his owner some honor as a patron. This man has, has become generous and would be seen more positively with those around him, with his debtors. So when we hear the phrase that the owner commends the manager for his shrewdness, it's not such a wild statement. I mean, he's just made him a massive loss. Wouldn't he be angry at him? Well, he has act acted shrewdly, but he's also gained some honor for both of them. The main thing there, though, is that he has acted shrewdly, smartly, He's made a good play. He's made a win with what he has done. Let's have a look at how the parable ends. So the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. And then there's, here's a little bit of a sting for the people of this world, those rich, horribly wealthy, uh, greedy people, they are, they are able to be shrewd and make those smart decisions to earn honor, even though there's 
costliness to it. They are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than other people of the light. That's the people of God. That's the followers of God. There's a bit of a sting there. It's a wake-up call for us. Perhaps let's get smarter. You know, think a little bit more about how we can use the things that we have now, this limited time we have. Let's get smarter about the time and the clock that is ticking on us. Jesus then says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, because it's going, you don't get to hold on to this stuff forever. When it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. It's very simple. Make friends. <laughs> It's a complicated parable to kind of wrap your head around it, but quite simple in the end. Make friends. Why? Why would you want to make friends? I mean, uh, you know, surely I just need to have faith in the Lord Jesus and I will have eternal security with God. I can have this wonderful relationship with God, says the Western individualist thinking only about our individual relationship with God. But Jesus is bringing in a communal aspect here because who else are you going to be spending eternity with? You're not going to be spending eternity just you and the Lord Jesus. There's going to be a whole lot of other people there too. And if we can't get along now... That's going to be a little bit awkward for all of eternity, right? There's not going to be the Catholic section in heaven and the Protestant section in heaven and the other section in heaven. And, you know, we're not going to be separated out. We're going to be together. So how about we learn how to be friends now to make that shift a little bit easier? Uh, there's, a, there's a really interesting phrase in... Um, in 1 Corinthians 3, talking about, you know, the, the stuff that we work on in this life and the things that we build for ourselves in this life, and some things last, some things go through, some of the love that we invest in now, uh, some of the wonderful uh, changes that we make when we're working for justice, when we're, we're drawing people in. There are things that we can do now that actually last into eternity, and there's a whole lot of stuff that we can invest our time in and our resources and our worldly wealth, and, it, and it's just a waste. Some of that stuff that we do for selfish gain, that doesn't honor other people, that's twisted, it messes up the world, those things are going away. They will not last. And the image there is that they're going to be burnt up. Those, thing, those evil things, those twisted things are going to be burnt up as the new heavens and the new, new earth arrive. And there's this interesting phrase, 1 Corinthians 3, about uh, a, a man who does that going into eternity. So you might have faith in Jesus, but you've, you've, you've shaped your entire life around selfish gain and things that don't last. When you go into eternity, it's as though you are escaping through fire. So as those things burn up around you, going into eternity, it's a bit of a, a burning, cleansing experience to actually go through it, is the, is the image that is there. 
So why, why not shape our lives now? What's the incentive? Well, it's going to be hard to, to shift into heaven if we've just spent our lives for selfish gain. The other thing there, um, that last, those last words, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So is this saying, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself, as in buy some friends with money, that will get you into eternity. Because you could read it like that, you could say, you know, buy some friends, you know, share your wealth around, be really generous, that will get you into heaven. I think if we read the rest of Scripture, that's not what we hear. So what, what does this mean? Well, if you look at the equivalent in the parable, he's making friends so that when he's out, there are other people around him. Um, eternal dwellings, I think this is referring to the other people who are in eternity, the other Christians who are there, and will be welcomed into fellowship with them. Imagine the joy, imagine the joy, reaching eternity, and there is someone else there that you have loved and cared for as you arrive. Imagine that the joy and the, the overflowing love to then celebrate that for the rest of time. Imagine giving of yourself so much, giving of your abundance so much to others that you get to celebrate those things for the glory of God for the rest of time. Uh, some poor application of this uh, it doesn't just mean reciprocity. It doesn't just mean um, try and set up a trade relationship with a whole bunch of people. It doesn't mean, you know, give them some money so hopefully you get something back from them. That, that's reciprocity when you have a kind of transactional deal with people. Um, that is not community. It's a part of community, but it is not community. I went to a conference once that was talking about uh, vertical communities. So high rises, how do we have a sense of community in these high rises when there's lifts and people just kind of go into their room and lock themselves away? How do we build community there? And uh, one of the realizations was as they were talking about, you know, trying to bring reciprocity into a vertical community like that, it only goes so far because the, uh, the greatest, one of the greatest examples of reciprocity is the mafia. <laughs> You know, just transactional deals, like I do this for you, you do this for me. That's reciprocity. It doesn't equate to community. Uh, buying friends dishonestly. I think I've touched on that. Jesus is not saying to just go and buy friends using dishonest gain. Um, and then obsessing over gift giving. It doesn't mean to just kind of obsess about gifts. Uh, a great example of that is we've just had uh, Lunar New Year and one of the traditions is, you know, the, the red envelopes full of cash. Uh, there are some Christians who are part of a, a tradition, their family celebrate Lunar New Year. Instead of filling it with cash, they put uh, Bible verses and encouragements in there, in that red envelope to share with them. Uh, it doesn't mean just, and, and especially now when our 
understanding of wealth has shifted so much. We're not in a first century setting, and so just giving cash doesn't always translate well. Uh, and then, I guess, just understanding that um, unjust and untrustworthy are very different to being shrewd. You can be shrewd and moral. So, some simple application. Uh, let go of money, your possessions, the things that you have to bring benefit to others. And particularly, the direct application is debt relief um, to, to bring about a more abundant society. Uh, some other application is to serve in the church. Um, what better way to make friends with those people that we're going to spend eternity with than to actually invest in their lives? Our amazing uh, Oak Tree Kids leaders, you know, the investment that they're making in those people's lives, their kids might not recognize it now, but how wonderful to celebrate those things in eternity, knowing that that investment has been made. And also sharing the good news. If we're uh, sharing the wonderful news of Jesus with others, they are then being welcomed into eternity. Um, what a great way to make a heavenly friend. Uh, and then some other interesting possibilities, and you can think of your own. Uh, think about donating blood if you're able, because essentially, if you donate some blood, some of those people you will meet in eternity. At the moment, it's anonymous. But you would meet some of those people in eternity. And what a fascinating story to share about the difference you've made in someone's life. Uh, not for now. Um, you don't get the credit now, but uh, later down the track you might be. Uh, turn up on time. Friends, friends love um, uh, some punctuality. Uh, be a polymath would be another one. A polymath is someone who has a diverse a range of interests, they learn a whole lot of different things, uh, that helps to, to make a wide variety of friends if you're able to talk about a wide variety of topics. And uh, what about becoming an expert in humour? What if you just, you know, googled, how do I be funny and make people laugh? Like, you can find out how to be a funnier person. Like, I'm... You've all just, a few of you have laughed, but I'm, I'm not very funny. I've had to kind of learn how to make, how to make a joke. But it's, it's an essential part of making a friend. It, it can be used to dishonor people. Humor can be used to, uh, you know, put people down. But you can actually use humor to honor people and to build them up and to build friendships. I think there's going to be a lot of laughter in heaven. I think there's going to be a lot of joy and, and abundance of that. So, again, learn now. Become an expert uh, in making people laugh and share that with others. So there you go. Lots of stuff to talk about. I hope connect groups can have a bit of a, a chat about uh, this, this tricky little parable. Uh, but let me pray for us uh, as, we, as we wrap up. Lord Jesus, thank you uh, for the mystery of your stories, these stories that sing and sting, uh, that we can chew on them and uh, wonder about what, what did you actually mean here? What do you want us to do? What do you want us to see? What do you want us to feel? How do you want to uh, shape our hearts? So Jesus, would you shape our hearts according to your heart? 
that we would be so full of your generosity, so full of your love, so caring for other people, that we would break out of our individual mindset and to be communally minded, to think about others, to think about the dynamics within a society, how we can bring honour to other people and how we can make friends for eternity. Wonderful people that we can sing and sing and laugh and dance and bring glory to you, Lord Jesus, for all eternity. Help us to start that work now, to continue that work now, to finish well that work in this life that is urgent. The clock is ticking. Help us to see the urgency, the energy we need to put to it and the resources that we can release for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.